Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. Huh. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the saints understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleep but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Blackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said he who puts his hands to the pile looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the trenches five minutes and you about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you doubt for me, I was still tripping. Now, how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but your study trying to reach, huh? But after him who was able to possess your father by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now, the point is that was prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate. like a technical issue she's she's been texting me that she's on so uh, hopefully we can get that worked out uh, okay 
see here. Let me see if it's on our end. Dr. Morrison, are you with us? I am here. Oh, there she is. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Doc, for joining us. Definitely appreciate you. Uh, you know, all these they say all man-made items are subject to failure. So. <laughs> we we gonna put it on the technical things, but at any rate, we're glad you could join us. Um, for the sake of our audience, uh, you know, uh, I gave you a brief introduction. I'm sure I didn't do you justice, but for the sake of me and our audience, will you tell our audience a little bit about you? Uh, well, I am a learning scientist and have been working across the last 30 years in both sciences as an ecologist and working in the field in different ways in forest ecology. Um, and then into learning and trying to understand in, from everything from working in middle school as an educator to um, research across the U.S. and globally to think about how we're teaching kids about climate and how we're working with communities around climate and climate justice. Okay. That sounds like some exciting work. You know, I'm going to ask you later on in the show how you get uh, – kids to pay attention to climate because I know when I was a kid, all, all I wanted to do was play. It didn't matter if it was raining, snowing, or anything. Yeah, yeah, and then there's lots of play to be had while you're learning. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure you know better than that about me. <laughs> anyway, Tom, let me have you go ahead and give you a brief introduction, and then we can get into these questions. Sure. So I am a communication specialist. I've uh, owned a exhibit design firm for about 25 years, working in in marketing and education education exhibits at museums and aquariums. And I I learned climate science because of the work we did for some clients uh, who were scientists, and it redirected my career. Um, so I have experience in the business small business community in strategic communication about climate change, uh, in decarbonizing businesses and operations and things like that. So um, uh, this collaboration with Deb, who comes at this from different directions but mutually complementary directions, has been really quite an astonishingly fruitful and exciting project. Well, I guess definitely it's definitely that uh, it's now is the time for it because every time you turn on the television and listen to the news, that's one of the most important uh, topics that we hear about is the climate. Yes, it is. So, guys, uh, how, tell us how did this book empowering climate action in the United States and the report that it contains come to be? Well, there's a, you know, as many things, it starts with a, people sitting around and talking and sharing, sharing food and drink and thinking about what it is that we are struggling with in the world and what do we need to improve. And so a couple of years ago, many um, leaders in science education across the U.S. were um, sitting together and thinking and working and trying to understand how we're broadening um, the participation in this kind of educational leadership space um, with that, that sort of reflects deep and important work that's been going on in climate justice for decades and I would argue centuries. Um, and so um, we try to think about like who's at the table and who's not in these conversations and how do we get um, more voices, particularly voices of those who are black, indigenous, other communities and people of color who are not necessarily being heard in those educational leadership spaces around it, um, science, how do we get them into the conversation and, and, and like defining the conversation? And so that, that was the beginning of it, really just that question. Um, and then, you know, amazing support from folks like the Spencer Foundation and Dr. Megan Bang in that space to really pull together enough resources to be able to support participation. Most people volunteered their time, but we really wanted to make sure that, you know, folks um, who are often overtapped and um, in BIPOC communities are really brought in with 
with money, like paid for their time and, and, and valued. So, yeah, we, we brought folks together and just listened and, and documented and heard everything they said. Okay, the ACE framework argues for the opposite approach. Can communities really lead an effective response to climate change? I Deb, do you so. want to? Sh- I think you should dive in on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think communities are leading the climate response, and it's just a question of whether national leadership is hearing them or not. And so, when we when we look at the work of long time work of folks like um, Robert Bullard, Dr. Robert Bullard, Dr. Beverly Wright, um, Dr. Daniel Wildcat, others all across the nation, like we see that that leadership has been there for a long time. And what we're not seeing is that that's not coming into learning environments. You know, it's really divorced from what we see going on in the classroom. And so um, that's what we really wanted to change with this is think about how learning environments are really leveraging much of that work that's been going on for a long time in communities. Oh, great. I'd like to – Did you want to – I'd like to – I was just – I was just going to ask you that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, thank you, you, Lamont. Go Uh, for it, sir. Yeah, I come at this from a different angle. Um, That's not education uh, education oriented, and the and the question that has driven me is how do we change our culture so that people feel engaged and empowered to start taking taking ownership of the climate crisis and creating the world that we all want to live in. And uh, some of us who got involved in this project last year, who work in communication and activism and other other spaces in addition to education and science and, and learning science and social science is, is that we need to mobilize society. We need a whole of society kind of mobilization in order to make our communities more robust, in order to adapt to a changing world, and also to, to reduce the greenhouse gases that are causing the problem in the first place. So how do we do that? And a couple of really key things occurred. One is that there was a moment last summer when this project really came to fruition, came into focus, um, that people saw the possibility of a change in the presidential administration. Um, We didn't even know who the the, uh, Democratic nominee would be for president when this project was initiated, but but there was a chance of it for a change, and all of the Democratic candidates were talking about making a major uh, policy changes on climate change and rejoining the Paris Agreement and so forth. And so the question was, is there a way to seize this moment of opportunity by bringing people who work in different sectors, different professions, different geographies, you know, very, very different locations and circumstances in their lives uh, together and find um, uh, and find areas where we agree, disagree, but but where we see opportunities to create a strategic alignment for greater collective impact quickly, not over decades, but over a period of months and years. Um, and so there was that sense of timeliness and urgency in this work. In addition, as as Deb rightly said. Um, of recognizing and building upon the work that's been going on for uh, decades at least in climate justice and in climate and environmental work more broadly. Hmm. Okay, very good. I just want to put out here for our listeners uh, that just joined in, if you'd like to join the conversation, uh, the caller number is 646-929-2870. Just press number one on your phone. Let us know that you're there, and we would be glad to let you join the conversation. Um, Tom, I'm going to throw this and that mm-hmm. out there to you. I think you mm-hmm. may have touched on it briefly. briefly. Action for Climate Empowerment. Um you describe it as being transformational. What makes it transformational? Well, there are a couple of things that really uh, come to fore in that question. The first is that, that we have been taught to think of climate change as something that's got to be solved in a top-down way, right? That's the way the federal government mostly works. It, it, it is a centralized uh, I mean, it, there is a web of people in the federal government who work with local communities and stakeholders all across this country. But, 
But the news media and our perceptions of the federal government tend to gel around the Beltway in Washington, D.C. And one piece of this that's so transformational is that it's bringing diverse leaders together who have been acting and working and learning for a very long time uh, from all of these different walks of life together in dialogue. And the quality of that experience uh, was in itself transformational because it convinced me, certainly, I think it convinced all of us, that the resources, the knowledge, the wisdom, the expertise, the energy that we have in this country is broad. It's everywhere. It exists in, in pockets in local communities everywhere. It, it often isn't as evident as, as big organizations are because it's happening locally, as Deb said, that's where the, the heart and soul of this work is. And when you encounter other people who are in good faith, who are also doing this work in their own ways and in their own spaces, um, it creates a, a, a really transformational sense of, of your, our, your own empowerment, first of all, and our capacity to act collectively in ways that we hadn't been thinking of before. And I think for those reasons, you know, inherent in that is that is that historically marginalized voices, people, voices of people of color, of people with low incomes, of people who don't work in large organizations and have positions of authority in large organizations and governments, had just as much voice, just as much to contribute as those who have those positions. And and that in and of itself really changes the game, and it and it convinced me certainly and I think it convinced many of us that this is exactly where we need to put our effort right fantastic uh, Dr. Morris and Tom I think we may have another, a caller here let me see yeah and I just go by Deb usually <laughs> okay Deb I'm sorry uh, 504 no, you're on hey good afternoon how are you great uh, fantastic I'm, how are you hey this is Carlos Ringer, I just decided to join in to get the information, get some knowledge about it. I'm not really too up on climate change, but I just it's, it's good to listen to see what's really going on. Well, you have two professionals on the show right now. I can tell you everything that it is uh, about climate change. So if you have any particular questions, specific questions, shoot them. I certainly will. I've been listening, and, I'm, and they're very informative. So I'll just continue to listen. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for calling in. All right. Uh, Deb, uh, uh, Tom, I'm, I got a question. It's kind of like out in left field, though. Why do you feel like it's so difficult to get people to focus in on the fact that we need to give more attention to the climate crisis? You know, I think that's actually shifting a lot now. I think it's more about the the how we do it. Um, sometimes the challenge that you have is that it's such a big problem that people don't know where to start. And by thinking of this sort of action for climate empowerment thing, we think about, like, how do we break it down to the smaller problems of education or training or public awareness? And how do we, like, really look in community? Where are we already doing those things? How do we connect what we're already doing to that bigger climate question so that people can learn in the context of what they care about every day? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, you know, we tend to think of something as big and bold and broad as climate as a thing of its own, but we actually experience climate in many different ways in our lives, and we can act on climate change in many different aspects of our lives. And um, and people are beginning to discover this more and more. So if you're working on environmental justice issues in your own community, you are working on climate already. Um, the, the other thing that I'd like to note is that there is a real shift in this work away from, from the kind of thinking that we've been sort of been inculcated into us that, that I have to figure out how my actions matter and, and I feel small my emissions are small, the climate is a global issue, and climate change is a global issue, so what difference does it make if I take action? 
the new sh- the shift really is toward collective action, toward the collective capacity of all of us to, to act in collaboration with one another, um, but also that the actions that any one of us takes don't exist on their own. They they're part of a of a trend. They're part of a movement to empower all of us and mobilize our actions together, which is how we have enormous power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, yeah. and and that collective, you know, that collective sometimes is maybe it's our family, maybe it's our organization that we belong to, or work, or our church, or you know, like all of those different types of places where we are and where we work with others. Those are that collective action space that we can engage in. Oh, okay. Well, talk to us a little bit about uh, finding justice-centered climate action. Deb, do you want to start on this one? Sure. So when you think justice is also one of those super big words like climate, um, and what we understand is justice depends on where we live and, and who who we're living with and surrounded by. And so sometimes that might be issues of racial justice or intersectional issues of racial and gender justice. Um, Other times it could be issues of justice related to indigenous rights. Um, And so when we're thinking about, um, it could be economics too. Um, So when we're thinking about a particular justice issue, we kind of have to think in a really specific local. So like in my community, one of the issues of justice is about how we actually have affordable housing that's built in ways that are resilient to storms, um, that are energy efficient, but that are also economically feasible for people. And so that's an intersectional issue of justice that actually also connects with Indigenous rights to be here in this community and be able to live here. And so um, those types of things, you know, building doesn't necessarily always, you know, on people's idea of climate justice, but it is about climate justice because it's about how we construct using materials that are going to be sustainable in the broad idea of our community and produce energy efficient buildings so that we're, you know, being able to live inside our boundaries as humans in space. Hmm. I'd like to give another example of it that came out of the framework, uh, the book project. Uh, and the framework project that under that underlies it, and that is um, there was a discussion especially among um, uh, some of the, some of the people of color and and the indigenous uh, participants who said, "You know government keeps setting goals for net zero emissions, and what that means is that by let's say two thousand and fifty we 're going to have a target for for let 's say zero net emissions. That means you can continue to emit carbon pollution in one place if you're taking it out of the atmosphere somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So you, you plant a huge forest and it's re- removing carbon dioxide, and so you can still have your, your crowded freeway running through the city or full of gasoline-powered cars and diesel trucks, or you can have a power plant that's burning coal. And, and those who's, who, who find themselves living along the fence lines of those coal-fired power plants where the pollution is really high and the health impacts are terrible, or who find themselves living near the freeways that carry all the air pollution from those cars and trucks and have the negative health consequences. Those people tend to be lower lower income. They tend to be people of color, as I mentioned last week in in all of Los Angeles and the city of Long Beach where I live. Um, those people were saying net zero is a bad target. What we need is actual zero emissions by 2050. So that because that would require that we stop polluting in those neighborhoods where people are being disproportionately harmed already. And so mm-hmm. this kind of justice-centered shift makes you say, okay, so if I'm privileged and I live in a in a wealthy community far from the source of pollution and my model is net zero, that means that that having the lifestyle I live is already creating harm for somebody else. If we're going to really have a just approach to climate solutions, part of that is to say, wait a minute, that, doesn't, that isn't fair, right? That's unjust because those people who are disadvantaged don't have ways out of that disadvantage. So 
let's turn this model around and say if we have to achieve net zero, I mean zero emissions instead, that means we stop the pollution that harms people who are being unfairly disadvantaged. That's a really um, powerful but also sort of specific shift in the entire framework in which we talk about climate change. And it's, I think it's invigorating and empowering, even though a lot of people will be challenged by it, but it's really, the, it's really where we need to go. Tom, let me ask you this. The city leaders or the political figures that's living in some of these same areas, I mean, are they quiet about this? Or what are they doing? Are they hands tied? So, um, it, no, they, see, they work on it in big and complicated. They see it as a long-term complicated project. Uh, I, I gave you the example of Long Beach. We have the busiest seaport in the United States here. Right. And so all those trucks carrying containers run up freeway through the through Long Beach. And so the pollution within, say, a 1,000 feet of the freeways is far worse than it is anywhere else in town, right? And guess who lives there? So, so there are – the city leaders can't solve it alone. They have to solve it with the port. They're trying to solve it with the state regulators that are requiring diesel trucks. There are all these studies of electrifying the trucks so that they stop the pollution. Um, uh, there are things that they feel that they can't control, such as why are we importing so much consumer goods that so many consumer goods that we throw away? Is that smart? You know, sustain from a sustainability framework. Does that make any sense at all? And so, and they are investing in more parkland, more tree planting, more other things to make those neighborhoods um, uh, uh, shielded as much as further from the impact of the pollution. Um, what I don't see, however, is a, a genuine, the kind of community engagement and empowerment that, that the contributors to this framework process voiced, where you really do give the people in those communities leadership roles in making decisions for the city. Because if you did, you'd get different outcomes, right? Um, and, and for example, instead of, uh, instead of, just planting trees to benefit those communities, there would be more investment in those communities that the people who live there would direct so that they so that they have more control so they can build more robust economic foundation for themselves so they can start to to they're empowered to start in enacting policy decisions to their benefit um, and the structure of our city government hasn't really transformed its thinking in those kind of empowering ways yet. And I think it's that's a microcosm of what's happening in cities everywhere, right? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. This this acronym BIPOC I found that find that interesting. Black, indigenous and people of color. Um you guys wrote in your book which you just happen to be white. How do you make sense of this apparent inconsistency? Yeah. Deb, do you want to start on that, or shall I? Yeah. Yeah, I can start on that. So, <laughs> hey, yeah. Okay, Deb, <laughs> no, go no, it's for fine. it. <laughs> so, yeah, we were the writers of the initiative, but there was a huge collaborative that was involved in organizing and reviewing, and there's many different terms that um, we and you know, words like the word America, too, um, that were sort of named by reviewers. Um, mo most of the reviewers and many of the reviewers were people of color. Um, and so trying to figure out um, how to have the capacity to write it because of our privileged position, both Tom and I had time to be able to volunteer our time to do the writing. But... Um, at the same time, we meet, we understood our own positionality and needed to check it, you know, check our whiteness. And so the reviewer panel had a look at that. And we wanted to constantly be able to name different, um, sort of different positionalities that were being really marginalized in these conversations. And so the BIPOC acronym that has been used in the last year or two, um, it was thought to be a broad enough sort of inclusion that Indigenous um, voices were sort of our indigenous positionalities were being named as well as 
black and some of the anti-blackness work or like naming that had gone on last year and then um and has you know long time um been done so it was it was an acronym and it was kind of a consensus acronym used inside the report yeah i'll add to that that our job wasn't to be the the authors of this report our job was to um to do the best job we could of articulating in the language we heard it from the dialogues, from the participants in the dialogue, what their priorities were. And so so our job was to organize. You know, there were four multi-hour dialogues that involved 150 people uh, or so, and uh, we, we went through the materials, the summaries, the notes, the recordings. We, we listened to and participated in the dialogues. Uh, and took our own notes as well and and our task really was to was to organize the input of the people who spoke not not to express our own perspectives and obviously nobody is a neutral reporter there's no such thing in this world and so there were three robust rounds of review the first draft was reviewed by the the coordinating team that put this whole project together and you know, they they went through line by line and issued comments, and we responded to every single comment and uh, and edited the draft accordingly. And then there was a, a round with about 20 strategic reviewers who were chosen for their diverse perspectives and positions in the world. Uh, they submitted, I think, roughly f- about 500, three to 500 comments line by line mm-hmm. again, and we responded to each and every one. Um, and quite often their their comments had to do with the framing of the language and so mm-hmm. and so we um we responded to that framing and we reworded things and added notes for clarity when the wording might be misconstrued um and then this went out to a broader review uh, that involved the the wider network of the people not only the participants but the people who they shared it with uh, and they sent their responses line by line, and we had at least 500, I think more, responses from from that round of review. And again, we did exactly the same thing. We went through the whole document, every single comment, and adjusted the document carefully and, and critically. I mean, there were there were some comments that would have sent the document off in a different direction, and so we we were not able to to include them, include all of them. But but we were very uh, consciously made the decisions to to include for example points that that not everyone agrees with but we we say not everybody agrees with this but here are the things people said so um so that it's really not us <laughs> as much as possible <laughs> uh and i think that the responses that we've gotten from the participants have been um very enthusiastic that they see themselves reflected in they see their own views and voices reflected in this document and you know the more the less you see deb and me the better the more you see them the better and uh, i think we were pretty the impression i get is that we were pretty successful in in playing that role and and maybe one more thing to add on to that is that the the comment and review process that Tom just described that was for the actual framework which I think is chapter 4 of our book mm-hmm. um but in the book one of the things that we did intentionally to kind of make the, the book is really made to help the framework travel and so um in the book one of the things we did was we actually really named those assumptions so we actually named the use of the term BIPOC and the idea of, like, what aspects of different positional racism we're trying to uncover and make explicit by not just saying people of color, like, by not just saying black or not just saying indigenous, by being much more sort of inclusive of different ways people experience racism as part of the aspect of racism that gets talked about in the framework. Well, I definitely commend you guys on your uh, dedication and persistence because when I was listening to you speak, I was thinking about what point in time without a cut and ran. <laughs> <laughs> hard. Hard. Well, and there was, yeah, I'm with you. There, there are times when, you know, like 
you know, in in the position of being white and working in these issues of racism, it's owning your own, you know, reproduction or complicity and trying to constantly interrogate that. And, you know, Bettina Love did this so well in her book last year on, um, what was it? It was like, we need to do more than just survive. She talks about abolition teaching, and she talks about the way that we need to be constantly critical and reflective and, like, humble in the face of the work. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that we always are what we seek to be. Yeah, I'd like to actually add one other comment too, and this is a this is my own discovery in this work, and that is that um, as we advance in our professions, in our jobs, in our careers, we are we are all taught to establish ourselves as experts, to earn our stripes, to become mm. experts in whatever it is we do. And right. as I started reflecting on that, you know, because that's been my path too, right? I'm I'm. I just turned 65, so I've been at this kind of work for a long time, and by now I tend to be regarded as an expert in in a field. When you get into dialogue with a variety of different people of all ages, of multiple races, of very different backgrounds, of different uh, who work in different professions, you you can't help but discover that that definition, self-definition as expert, is is really, really problematic and misleading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I could believe right? that. <laughs> yeah, because it, it tells it tells us that my views matter and that my views should be normative for everybody else and my views should be privileged and everyone should listen to me. And as you, you know, I was I consider myself so fortunate. My role in the dialogues was to listen to them, take notes on them, not really contribute to them because I was going to write about them, right? So... So I was an observer, and as I observed, I discovered the, the the phenomenal depth of knowledge and expertise and wisdom everywhere. And it it challenges all, I think, to to set aside this notion that I have some expertise that's supposed to be more important than someone else's, because in fact, everybody you know you, you come out of these kind of dialogues and you want to say. Man, just give all the power to these people and we'll be fine. <laughs> right? I don't have to play that role. And so it really shifted, at least for me, it shifted the nature of this project to being a servant to the overall process, the value of the process, rather than thinking I was all that. <laughs> yes, I I could see how dealing with some of those other people cause you to open your eyes up and kind of like, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe I need to step back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and so does everybody else who is an expert. I mean, this is the this is the great move of humility. We're we're all in the service of our collective future. We're not in the service of our own positions. Our positions are only tools that give us opportunities, but we have to be really. Um, we have to, as Deb said, we have to constantly interrogate what our position tells us. Yeah, put our right. ego to the side and put the work in the front. Yeah. That would be a wonderful thing if everybody on this planet could see <laughs> out how to do that part. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Be a wonderful thing. Well, guys, as um, the ACE framework expanded, what other communities and professions should be brought into this process and – who are the big groups that would not represent it? Such a good question. Um, this we describe this as a pilot project in many ways because um, because this was a volunteer effort, and that means that the people who were willing I, I got to tell you if you if you work on climate or climate justice or an environmental justice, the number of opportunities you have to volunteer your time for <laughs> well-intended projects that don't go anywhere is is enormous, right? You can you can fill every day of every week with those. And so what was it that was going to going to compel people to participate in this and give this the kind of time and effort that made it so so good? And the answer is that they trusted the people who invited them. Um and that the way it was organized was going to be legit and the people inviting them were trustworthy and so and so it naturally selected kind of a um 
uh, Deb, you know the name for this, but the kind of network of people who who heard from others that they should participate and then invited others to participate is kind of a, a natural kind of, it creates a natural natural sort of community to do this work. That's very different than, let's say you were the president and you said, I want to invite leaders to come to Washington and under the authority of the White House to advise us on this work, you would get a different crowd. And so um, the people we didn't have the networks to attract were business, were a lot of uh, like white rural communities weren't well, were not well represented. Um, mm-hmm. The sciences were represented, but could be represented more strongly. And so there are there are additional audiences who who have who are stakeholders just like we all are who we think ought to be brought into these multi-sectoral dialogues in the future. Yeah, so you the think, idea, let's go ahead. So, so you think uh the word of mouth uh, approach is more effective than, you know, promoting or invitations? Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's not it, it is the word of mouth, but it's it's the word of mouth through like networks of networks, and and it's that idea of the trusted messenger, the trusted relationship of like working in relationship with each other, and I think I I do think that in the long term of like sustained work, you know, when there's not a grant in front of you, when there's not a you know a giant funding opportunity through a foundation, the, what, what sustains the work is that commitment and accountability to each other because you're working in relationship with each other. And um, that idea is like not working or weaving are the metaphors that people use. Um, but it is those organic leaders that, you know, you don't necessarily see on their resume that they should be the person to connect with, but they are. You know, they're the, the organizing sort of wonderkind of their community. And um, you find a lot of women in this space, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you do. And so, you know, those are the folks that you really hold the fabric together of, of this type of justice work. Yeah, I would also add that I think that, that invitations to convenings are also valuable. The The thing about ACE that's really different, though, is that it, we would want to combine the kind of people you would get through the, through those high level invitations into dialogues with the people who were who were attracted to participate in this in the first place who are much more at the grassroots level or local community level um because it's that collaboration and dialogue across those those boundaries that are typically set aside you know the people you know i've been in small business forever and when i make a statement everybody says yeah but you're a small business guy who cares that's just you that's just an anecdote you're you don't represent anybody right that's kind of the politician's view of a small business owner whereas if i owned exxon or best buy or amazon and i spoke i'd have real they would listen to me because i represent 100,000 jobs or 50, you know, whatever it is, right? So these positions intentionally need to be scrambled if we're going to all come to understand the potential we have to solve these problems together. That's what the ACE dialogues can do. And I think in the future that's, that would be the way to make invitations really, really effective. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I definitely totally agree with that because just because you're in charge of a large corporation don't mean you have all the brains in the world. That's right. That's right. Was ACE is a part of the Paris Agreement, and then I said you pulled out uh, under Trump and now back in under Biden-Harris. Um, I don't want to ask you why did, why did that uh, Trump pull out in the first place. I don't want to ask that. Yeah, I kind of got yeah. stuck there. So, so what do you guys think? Under uh, Biden Harris, uh, you think that's going to make a difference? I mean, I think it does make a difference. But I think even before the Paris Agreement, you know, many many years before the Paris Agreement back in '92, um, you know, the the framework, the UNFCCC, it had the original language. ACE in it. It had that language about education, training, public awareness, public participation kind of language in it. And 
you know, that is something that has a long dimensions to it. So does the Biden-Harris administration make a difference? I sat on my couch after the Biden-Harris administration won the election, and I sobbed. I was so happy to have a change of, of you know, administration. And yet at the same time, I also want this want folks to understand that this is not solely about politics. This is about our shared future. And if you are like super Republican in the middle of America, it's just as much about you because it's about our shared future and how we come to understand in our local community what we get what we all have to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I think we're also learning that that because of this ACE work there there are efforts underway to to encourage its adoption in the in the White House and in the federal agencies in Washington, uh, and we're discovering many of the ways that government is structured that make it very difficult to truly collaborate with communities. Um, there are all kinds of rules around how the government is allowed to engage with the public and get advice from the public, uh, and so forth. And so, a lot of what happens in government is is top down, right? They deliver knowledge to us. They deliver science products to us. They deliver advice to us. They deliver money to us in the form of grants or or investments or competitions for grants that that you can't even apply for unless you have the infrastructure to to figure out how to do the applications and all of that. Um, And this work is already really robust in communities uh, who want more sustained collaboration and support from the federal government and from the private philanthropic community um, that sustains this work over the long haul and and builds upon it and expands Mm -hmm. it. And, and so it's a mixed bag. The, the challenges of doing real collaboration and getting the attention of leaders and, and helping them find ways to truly collaborate with community level organizations and governments and so forth, um, is an ongoing challenge. And, and having the Biden and Harris team in the white house, uh, is helpful, but it doesn't take the challenges away. And so I think that, that this is going to be, uh, this is going to require commitment and work from a lot of people to 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 make to make the promise to fulfill the promise of this agenda um, going forward. And I and you know it's it's good it's what you what do they call it? good trouble right? This is good trouble yeah, to be involved trouble. with. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think the Biden Harris administration should uh, create a national strategy? Or did you guys already do that for them? <laughs> yeah, right? Maybe maybe that's what this is, and, and we just need to, like, move on with implementation of it, you know, and, and figure out in in the next step, not so much making a plan that, that we have to then enact, but, like, enacting things as we go and iterating and refining and making it better and expanding it to include some of those who haven't yet been included. And... So I think what we even consider to be a plan has to also change. It has to be something that's a living, working, you know, strategy for, for how we engage in climate action. Because honestly, I, I don't think that we have time to spend a year making a plan and then act. That's just not available to us anymore. Totally, yeah. I totally agree with that. So where should you think the government should focus its efforts on, on the climate change? Um, I would say that, that they need to focus a lot on local local level, where because this is where people feel climate to be most powerful and most salient to them. And it's also where they feel that they can make a difference in their own lives. So so that's a huge focus of it. And, and to his credit, Biden has said that um, he wants to to engage more with with communities and with state governments. So we don't yet know what that's going to look like, but that's that's those are good words to hear. Um, then there are things that only the only large organizations like the federal government can do. They can transform their procurement practices. 
to include climate uh, adaptation and mitigation training in in the procurement process to to change the standards of you know they're the biggest buyer the biggest customer in the world right and so and they own enormous amounts of property that can be um, made more efficient and and more climate adapted and so and they can also invest in the kind of research and development that small entities cannot do so there are roles to play for them but those roles should really robustly embrace collaboration more collaborative models and they have pilot programs in community level collaboration um, in some of the federal agencies i know noaa for example the national oceanic and atmospheric administration has some programs that are that are very successful but also still so far very small so there's a lot of opportunity but i think that if if they take care of the 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 big things that only large organizations can do and just take care of that stuff and then really focus their attention on the local and state level and regional level i think that we would change we would change our our national approach to climate you know we could do it very quickly if if we do that uh-huh. Yeah, another good example wow. of that is is the work that's been done with the EPA, with the Environmental Justice for Tribes and Indigenous Peoples. Um, there's been some excellent work in that area, but again, it's about like heavily resourcing those folks who are already doing great work and helping them figure out how to do more work in regional areas and local communities. Yeah, I still can't understand why a lot of these communities still don't have clean water. Yep, that's right. And and that's actually a really great point. Like, what even constitutes climate action? Like, basic needs often need to be met well before that. But even meeting those basic needs is part of this, like, intersecting work of climate now. So, like, it's really about environmental and climate justice um, because, you know, like, clean water in some spaces is about, like, how we solve that issue right in front of us and how we also think about the climate aspects as we solve that problem. I wish we can get rid of a lot of these greedy civic leaders and political people. <laughs> I was just thinking about, you know, I was reading this thing about local towns and city and small businesses. Um, I'm like the government, uh, gave a lot of money to the SBA for small businesses, and the SBA has just been sitting on that money, haven't been mm-hmm. providing the loans, and I don't understand mm-hmm. that. And I asked one of my associates the other day, if if they're not giving the people that, that qualify or can have these loans, what happens to all that interest that that money collects while they're holding this money? Mm-hmm. Where does that go? And I still haven't got an answer for that. Where, where does where does that money go? I mean, you're not granting these loans, but you have you know millions and billions of dollars sitting there. Where does the interest off that money go? I'm sure it's accruing interest somewhere. Where does that money go? Yeah, it's yeah. an interesting <laughs> question. And, and and there are also lots of questions about who gets that money when they do start distributing it in in terms of loans and, and grants. Um, because not everybody has the skills, the capacity um, to do it, and and there are lots of businesses that you know you go through the application process and you get three quarters of the way through it, and then you find out that for some reason you don't qualify. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot embedded in that work that. But that's that's Tom. That's, that's if, sorted out. If you ha- Tom, that's if you have a computer and if you have internet that's access. Right. Exactly. That's, right. that's exactly yeah. right. And if you have that's the time to figure out how to apply, which a lot of yeah. small business owners don't have. Yeah. And and that also brings up the idea that like the the other aspect of this that we've been discussing in, in a couple different spaces is even the structure of the application, like like, is it asking for prior funding? Is it asking for types of privilege that are accumulated on a resume? Or is it really about, you know, desettling and disrupting those, those, those types of things and actually making sure that the money hits where it's needed as opposed to 
who has the, the correct sort of credentials to get it, you know, because that's a justice issue too about like, you know, how, who qualifies for what and what are you basing that on? And so trying to like change the people who make those systems so that they understand that when you ask for, for certain kinds of criteria, they're going to preference people who often are white or often are middle class who already have it and aren't the ones who really need the resources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Wow. Hey, Tom, that takes me back to the, he who created the game also made the rules. That's yeah, right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, and this work is really about disrupting who makes the rules. Because right. if you if you get the right group of people, a different group of people, around the table making the rules together, you're going to have different rules and you have different outcomes. And, and, right. And I think, I think that's a lot of what the ACE, this book and the ACE work that, that is the heart of it revealed is that we don't just need to lobby to change rules. We need to lobby to change who's at the table making the rules. Totally. Um, And that's right. And that's, that's the game. That's the game right there. And those are the same people that's fighting by tooth and nail because uh, they don't want to relinquish the power. Because once they do uh-huh. that, they know that some changes can come. Yep. Yep, that's true. And I so think guys, we need more. Go, oh, go ahead, Deb. I think the last thought on that for me would be, like, we need more people who who are in these, like, positions like like more white people frankly we need more white people to like understand and own their own responsibility in changing these systems and um because you know this is our shared future and yeah it's just where we are so intricately connected through our environment and through the changes we're seeing in it that we just justice has to be at the core of how we're changing things that's that's well put. <laughs> well, we definitely gonna we definitely gonna keep that thought in prayer, boy. Because I see a whole bunch of weak, scary people, greedy people, and yep. and, I, and I and I just don't understand it. I mean, if they could get past those things and look in the mirror every day and ask themselves one question: What kind of man am I? Or what kind of woman am I? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe some change can start right there at that point because it's. It's really easy to say, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me, but it does. It has something to do with it, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It it really does. And, you know, uh, I keep hearing Biden say climate is an existential threat. What does that mean? That means that our our lives depend on it, right? And our kids' lives literally depend on it. That's what existential threat means. Our society depends on it, that we get do something about it. And so the assumption that we can pivot from that statement to business as usual, to doing the same things that got us here, to having the decisions made by the same people who got us here, does that make any sense at all? No, (laughs) it really doesn't. And so in addition to standing in front of the mirror and saying, what kind of person am I? It's like, what kind of situation are we really in? And does doing Mm -hmm. things the same way make any sense if it's not transforming the future for the better. And um, and I think part of the, you know, you asked earlier what made this transformational, this project transformational. Well, it's it's that when you change the the people who are at the table and you really listen to the, to the people who've been brought to the table who weren't there before, holy cow, it's inspiring, you know? Um, and and it, it makes it, easy to say, yeah, let's change the people at the table. Um, now, if I was a greedy local politician who, or national politician with a giant <laughs> ego, I might not make that statement. But um, <laughs> I think this kind of exposure to this work, though, can can really be transformational. And we're definitely going to keep the word, keep the message out there, because it definitely affects each and every one of us in more ways than one. I think I mentioned you once before, Tom, that I'm a fisherman, and I could definitely tell how it's affecting just on that level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, an interesting point about that, um, Lamont, is that uh, I, years ago I I was 
sort of introduced to the National Wildlife Federation, which is a, a interesting organization of local chapters that includes, uh, uh, you know, environmental activists and hunters and and people who mm-hmm. fish and conservatives and liberals, people who you don't normally think of as being in an organization together, because they all see, for for a variety of reasons, they have different. Uh, they see changes in the environment that that they're disturbed by, and they want to see stopped. Um, and it's a real example of how, when you connect with people around the issues that that they care about, it sort of doesn't matter what their political ideology is anymore. Right. And and there starts to be common ground. And you know that to, that's one of the things that gives me hope is that if we can uh-huh. focus more on that and less on this crazy horse race nonsense that we get in the media about who's, you know, the left and the right are going at each other and who's up and who's down, um, we would be talking about the real work and not talking about this big distraction. Well, I think that's what they like going, Tom, is a distraction, because as long as you hooked up in that ball of confusion and looking at the, the big distraction, you don't focus on the real issues. That's right. Yeah. That's part. That's part of the plan. You know, that's part of the plan. Let's uh-huh. keep everybody confused, and they don't see what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't own their own power. You know, their own power in their own communities to do the things that are needed and to make the choices that are needed to be made every day. No, but and it's also the news media trying to trying to stir up controversy because controversy sells sells ads. Right. Yeah, they trying so, to keep they trying to keep their jobs too. I understand that, but can't you do that and be truthful? Well, that yeah. would be nice. That would be useful. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really, really nice, wouldn't it? But listen, it guys, listen. We down to the last minute or so of the show, man. Time really did fly. But go ahead. I'm gonna give you guys the opportunity to tell everybody where they can go get the book and how they can reach out for you. Well, the book is available at. at Online retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, and so forth. It's called uh, Empowering Climate Action in the United States, and it's short. It's a, it's a quick read. Um, you can also read the framework that is Chapter 4 of the book for free at aceframework.us. That's a website, aceframework.us, where the, the, uh, the central report in the book is posted and and more and more things as they come available will be posted there. It's an ongoing effort. So definitely reach out through that website to the whole community. Uh, Tom, Deb, did you guys do an audio book on this, or is it just strictly print? We did not yet, but I think Tom should. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might do it. Yeah, we probably should do it. The the publisher doesn't think... do audio books, so we might have to do it on our own. <laughs> A shameless plug. We are record company over here as well. So hey, don't forget us. That would be awesome. But anyway, I, I think that would be a great, great thing for you to do, Tom. Especially since society is in this ball of confusion, it would be great for them to be able to put your book in their CD player, or flash drive, or whatever, and they could get all this information, so they don't have no excuse from not sitting down and reading it. They could hear it. There you go. All yeah. right, it's a deal. It's a deal. Sold. <laughs> well, All right, guys, it's been fun. I definitely enjoyed you guys, and as, as always, the doors open. You know, come back anytime. Uh, I definitely love the message, and uh, it's motivational, inspirational, and it's great to know people out there like yourselves that's doing some great work and trying to help um, humanity. Because there's so many people out there trying to do the opposite thing, and I don't know how, how much how much. It is between ignorance and stupidity, but it seems like that line is getting washed away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's that greed. It's that issue of greed that you named. So, yeah. I, you I think you're out. absolutely right, Dr. Deb. I yeah. think you're absolutely right. Boy, they on this survival <laughs> roller coaster, and they don't know how to get off. They don't know what to do, and it's just this big ball of confusion. But we're going to keep them in prayer and and. and Keep our eyes wide open and duck when we should. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you stay safe and well. I shall do the same. We do the same. Thank you guys for joining us. We definitely appreciate you. And uh, for those that join the show late, it will be available 
in a couple minutes worldwide, and like I tell you every Sunday, ask your mama, ask your daddy, ask your neighbor across the street, the man at the gas station at the corner, the people that work in the supermarket, somebody should be able to tell you where to get this show. If not, you can always reach out to us at worldmovement.com, office number 323-957-7322, and we'll be able to direct you. So you got no excuses. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Same time, we appreciate you, and thank you guys a lot, Deb, Tom, we appreciate you, man, and you guys stay safe out there. You too, Lamont, right. thank you. All right, thank you. Bye. Yeah, yeah, old school, that's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the saints understand Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleeper but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Blackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said, he who puts his hands to the palm looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the church just five minutes and you're about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you died for me and I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're stuck at trying to reach huh? But after him who was able to possess your father by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point is this prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate.